for the uh, past couple of weeks, we've been talking about the idea of peace in the midst of trials. And we've been talking about the role that God plays in this peace specifically from Philippians 4, verses 4 through 9. There Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I will say, Rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Paul says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. If you notice in that passage, Paul speaks of both the peace of God and the God of peace. So there's both a peace that comes from God and a God who distributes peace. And as we've worked through that passage, I've explained that this peace is not peace in the sense of an emotional frame of mind, a state of serenity or emotional tranquility. Rather, it's a relational peace. Paul is talking about harmony in the Philippians' relationships, most specifically with one another, but I think even with the individuals who are persecuting them. This is the root of their conflicts with one another, of course. I've explained that often. They're suffering persecution for their faith, and the way that they're responding to the pressure of this persecution is by fighting with each other. And Paul is saying that if they only follow his directions, then they'll not only manage to establish peace within the church with their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, but they can find peace outside of it as well with the ones who are persecuting them for their faith. The reason why we think Paul is talking about an emotional tranquility when we read these words is because of the instructions he gives to arrive at this peace. Once again, verses 6 and 7, he says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It sounds like Paul is saying, stop being anxious. Instead, pray. And then as you pray, this state of emotional tranquility will come over you. In other words, it sounds like this command to not be anxious is sort of the heading of this statement. That's the general command. Don't be anxious. Instead, rejoice in the Lord. And then all the stuff that follows are the instructions that he gives for not being anxious. Paul says, instead of being anxious, pray. And then he describes the result. And when you pray, this peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will come over you. This tranquility, this serenity. But as I've explained, that's not what he's saying. Instead, the general command here, as it has been throughout this letter, is for the Philippians to be at peace with one another. And what Paul is doing is giving them instructions for how to arrive at that peace. He's telling them, don't be anxious, because that's the source of your conflicts. 
Instead, rejoice in the Lord, which you do by placing all your concerns before Him in prayer. And once you do this, Paul says, this relational peace that will protect the church from error and enable you to persevere in the faith, this peace will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So this is the relationship between anxiety and the peace of God. They're not synonymous with each other, but they are related to one another. And they're related in that anxiety has the tendency to disrupt the church's relationships with each other, whereas a lack of anxiety, faith in the Lord, that encourages peaceful and harmonious relationships. Now, in last week's message, we learned that Paul doesn't only promise the peace of God in this passage, he also promises the God of peace. He continues in verses 8 and 9, and he tells the Philippians, And if you do these things also, then not only will you receive the peace of God, but the God of peace will be with you as well. He indicates that God's favor will be inclined towards them, and he'll give them peace. And towards the end of that message, I indicated that, that I think when Paul says this, he's referring both to this internal and this external peace but that he's probably meaning to refer to the external peace primarily. In other words, the Philippians' method of escaping their suffering has been to war with one another, to, to grumble and to complain against each other. Some have even adopted key compromises to their faith or even apostatized, walked away from the faith. And Paul is telling them that's the wrong method. You're trying to seize your peace when you need to be praying for it. It's something that God gives you. So just follow my instructions in this God of peace who gives peace. He'll be with you and deliver you from your trials. I said the best way for the Christian to escape suffering is often to go through it. You don't run away from it. You don't work your way around it through compromise. You go through it. You endure it, and you endure it with great patience and righteousness. To use the words of Paul, you endure it while acting in a way that's honorable and right. Think on these things, Paul says, and practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. What I'd like to do this morning is spend a little more time explaining this last point. That the best way to escape suffering for your faith is through endurance. We don't run from the pain, we go through it. And I'd like to do this from 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7. So if you would, please go ahead and open up your Bible to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 5. Unfortunately, as we proclaim the cross of Christ, there are inevitably moments when the message that we proclaim and the life that we live are going to be less than popular. In fact, as we proclaim this message, we may even face the scorn of those closest to us, of our neighbors, of our co-workers, our friends, even our family. The world isn't always going to be kind to a message that proclaims its sin, and its need for repentance. 
Paul said it this way. He said, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We may not ever become martyrs for our faith, but that doesn't mean that we won't still face some level of suffering for our faith if we are faithful in Jesus Christ. There's really nothing that can be done about this. To to an unregenerate person whose heart has not been transformed to love God, the gospel is going to seem offensive. We say that a lot, I think. The gospel is offensive. But I don't know if we always take the time to really drink in that idea and understand what it means. I think a lot of times when we say the gospel is offensive, we think it means that a person finds the gospel intellectually or morally disagreeable. In other words, we think someone may be offended by the gospel in the same way that you or I may be offended by a dirty joke. They think it repugnant. They try to distance themselves from it. However, the gospel seems offensive to non-believers in a way much more serious than that. At its core, the true gospel of Christ is going to call people to a radical repentance from sin. It commands them to cease from their sin and turn to obedience to God. In short, it calls for a total transformation of a person's life. Now, for you and I, for Christians who've been born again by the Spirit of God, we get that repentance is actually part of the good news of the gospel. Living under obedience to God is the best place that we could possibly be. But for the unregenerate person, this message looks like very bad news. This is the very worst sort of news possible. After all, we're telling them to give up the sources of their greatest joy. We're telling them to stop doing all the things that they think bring them happiness. In short, even though we're proclaiming a message that's designed to help them, and and we're sharing it with them because we love them, we still look like enemies to them instead of friends. Please don't miss what I have to say here. Understanding the nature of persecution is absolutely critical to understanding what Peter has to say in this letter about what we're to do and why when we're suffering for our faith. I think that in the church we have the tendency to demonize unbelievers and make them more intentional than they really are in their rejection of us. We think in our head that they fully understand and know what they're doing. We think that when they reject the gospel, it's purely out of a hardened hatred for us in Jesus Christ. Truth is, most of the time it's not quite like that. That's because while Romans 1 does say that men exchanged what they knew about God for a lie, indicating an intentional suppression of the truth, it then goes on to talk as well about how God gave them over to degrading passions. The Scripture defines sinners as blind and dead to the things of God. In other words, they simply can't understand what we're saying when we tell them the truth. They can't understand why repentance to God is actually good news. And so they interpret our message That's very bad news. It looks like a message of hate rather than one of love. It looks like we're evildoers, not righteous people. And so they attack. They call us hateful or narrow-minded, even though that isn't what we are or, or what we're trying to do. In short, they spread lies about us. 
And as they do so, they actually think, just as Jesus said they would think in John 16, too, that in doing so, they're offering service to God. That's really hard for us. For our neighbors, our friends, our employers, our co-workers, our family, the people that we care about the most, it's hard for us to accept that this is often how they think about us. It's hard for us to hear what they say about us, and it isn't true, and, and so we want to do something about it. So what do we do? Do we, do we cry out and demand justice? Do we lash out at them and show everyone how wicked they really are? Today we're going to find out as we look at 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7, because in this passage, Peter instructs his readers in how to conduct themselves when gospel proclamation and faithfulness meets suffering. The people that he's writing to are not unfamiliar with persecution and suffering for their faith. Interestingly enough, when he writes this book and encourages, encourages these believers with the following words, they're facing persecution in a way not completely unlike the type of rejection we can face when we stand up for Christ. In fact, it's very similar We've probably all, you've probably all heard of how Christians in the early church were persecuted by the Roman state, you know, lion's dens and the Colosseum and all that. However, the type of persecution that's happening here is not commanded or enforced by some faceless, emotionless government. The suffering that these believers are facing is one that's taking place at the hand of former friends, at the hands of neighbors, at the hands of employers, it's even happening at the hands of husbands and wives. So what is the advice that Peter gave his readers as they underwent this kind of intense suffering for the gospel? When, when they're faced with the choice to obey Christ and suffer or disobey Christ and, fi- disobey Christ and find relief, what does Peter have to tell them? Peter says this, again, 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. As Peter's readers are faced with this strong desire to abandon their faith, either in word, by publicly denying Christ, or indeed by disobeying Christ for the sake of relief, these are the words he writes. Really, to summarize the points that he's been making throughout this entire epistle, once again he says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Peter's instructions in this passage come in two parts. There's both an action and a purpose. The action answers what his readers are to do in times of suffering for the gospel. The purpose tells us why they need to perform that action. What's interesting is that the action is counterintuitive. It works against every natural inclination inside of us when we suffer for the sake of obedience to Christ. And yet, through the action... Though it is counterintuitive, this purpose comes about. And that purpose, the result of that action, is exactly what we're looking for in times of suffering. Though I would have you note, it may not occur exactly when we might expect it. Let's take a look at this verse together. Let's begin with the action. 
The action is to humble yourselves. The appropriate way for the Christian to respond to suffering is with humility. Peter says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Now, what does that mean, to humble yourself? The word here is tapenao, and it means literally to make low or to lower. Uh, Jesus actually uses the same word in Luke 3, 5, quoting Isaiah 40, verse 4. It says, every ravine will be filled and every mountain and hill will be tapenao, brought low. The idea here is of an utter leveling off, turning a mountain into a plain. Well, we can't necessarily think of the usage of tapenao in this passage as the exact same kind of leveling off that Jesus is talking about there. Peter still has something very similar in mind here. Peter's telling his audience to lower themselves. Now, obviously, he's not thinking of it in the same sense that Jesus was in that passage. It's not a physical lowering he's talking about. Rather, he's saying that they must lower themselves in some other way. And of course, that probably seems obvious enough. However, what we might think of when Peter refers to humility here may not be what he actually has in mind in this passage. After all, he's not referring to the typical definition of humility, you know, someone who deflects praise. That's often how we think of humility. It's kind of like the baseball player who hits the game-winning home run, and he doesn't celebrate, right, but he simply walks into the dugout, gives a slight you know, tip of the cap on the way in, doesn't, doesn't try to bring in all this praise on himself. Or maybe we think of the politician, right, who wins a high office in some dramatic fashion, and then in his acceptance speech, he acknowledges the hard work that others put into his campaign and made his victory possible. These are definitely examples of humility. They're examples of lowering oneself, but it's not the type of humility that Peter has in mind here. And neither is it the type that Paul refers to in Philippians 2, 3, and 4, when he says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That type of humility refers to the lower estimation of your own needs and preferences in comparison to the needs and preferences of others, putting oneself second and someone else first. Peter's not referring to that type of humility either. He's not referring either to the notion of, neglect, of deflecting praise or putting other people's needs first, but the type of humility that he does have in mind does contain a kind of low self-regard, of lowering oneself. This is required of all humility. All humility requires, requires a lowering of how we regard ourselves. Right? When we deflect praise, we're saying we're not worthy of praise. When we put other people's needs first, we're saying they're more important than us. Peter's calling his audience to lower their self-regard like this, but in a slightly different way. So what kind of lowering is Peter talking about? Well, let's ask some questions of the text and let's find out. For instance, let's ask the question, where? You know, when we're driving in a car to some particular destination, we'll often look at our surroundings, right, to figure out where we're going. Uh, our surroundings serve as a point of reference for us. Uh, take me, for instance, I, I tend to navigate by McDonald's. <laughs> uh, don't ask me why that is. I don't even really like McDonald's that much. 
Uh, but if I'm rolling through a neighborhood, I'll, I'll, I'll probably say something like, I think I've been here before. I think there's a McDonald's right up there. And if you're asking for directions, I'll tell you, you know, uh, you drive this far, you'll see a McDonald's, then you'll go two blocks down, take a left. That's just how I get around. That's how a lot of people navigate, right? They use landmarks. If you're lost and you're on the phone with a friend who's giving you directions, they'll ask you to identify what's around you so they can tell you where to go. Well, if Peter's saying that we need to lower ourselves, then it's worth asking the question, where? Lower ourselves with reference to what? Humility requires a kind of positional change. We have to move from one mindset to another. But where exactly have we gone wrong? What makes us lost? What's our point of reference to know when we're no longer lost? To know when we're finally humble? In what way are we to lower ourselves? And the answer is under the mighty hand of God. Peter says, verse 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. This is the type of lowering that Peter has in mind. It's a lowering of oneself under the mighty hand of God. And what does that mean? What does that look like? I think probably the best way to answer this question is by asking what kinds of situations God is working in in these believers' lives. Since, after all, it's His hand that they need to humble themselves under. So if they need to humble themselves under God's mighty hand, then what is God working out in their lives? And quite honestly, the list can be pretty astounding. We learn, for instance, that they're apparently facing some kind of uh, persecution from an intolerant uh, government. Chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Uh, Peter says, Be subject for the Lord's sake, Again, be subject, lower yourselves under, uh, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. We learn as well that some of his readers are apparently slaves, suffering under the hand of unjust masters. And Peter tells them to humble themselves under their authority as well. Chapter 2, verse 18, he says, Servants, again, look at this, be subject. Again, lower yourselves under your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. In chapter 3, he instructs wives to follow the leadership of sinful husbands. Verses 1 and 2, he says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. So that even if some of them do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. And just in case you think the husbands are getting off light here, just a couple of verses later, he tells the husbands to patiently bear with their unreasonable wives. Verse 7, likewise, husbands, likewise, live with your wives in an understanding way showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the, of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And in all of this, it would appear that the root of the Christian's suffering, the reason why these people are being cruel for them, were, were lies about their faith, slander. And yet Peter's reply in all of this was to simply say, silence their accusations with your lives. Show them that the accusations they make about you, that you're evildoers who are out to destroy people's lives, show them these accusations are false by consistently and patiently loving them. For example, when Peter instructs 
these readers to be subject to the ruling authorities. He explains, again, chapter 2, verse 15, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. After he tells the slaves to subject, subject themselves to their masters, he likewise explains, For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Again, with the wives, Peter explains that the reason why they should submit is to win the repentance of their husbands. He says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some of them do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Peter says when people mock us or when they spread lies about us, we simply keep being righteous. We keep being obedient. We keep loving them. So he tells them to submit or to lower themselves in this sense. By bearing patiently with the abuse and the scorn heaped upon us for our faith in Christ. This can be an incredibly hard thing to do. To love those who hate us. It can be very hard because it seems like when we do that, it's going to lead to our destruction. We tend to think when we're threatened, you know, I've got to defend myself. Again, that's apparently what the Philippians thought. They thought they needed to create their own refuge, their own safety. That's apparently even why they're fighting with each other, blaming and complaining against each other. But to this point, Peter reminds his readers that God is actually the one who's brought these circumstances about in their life. He notes, for instance, chapter 3, verse 17, he says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So it would seem as if it can be God's will for the Christian to suffer for their faith. In chapter 4, verse 19, he states the matter even more plainly, writing, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. In other words, Peter is telling them these Christians don't need to defend themselves because God is in control of their suffering. In fact, he's even the one who's brought it about. When Peter says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, he's primarily stating that these believers need to submit themselves to the various situations that God has put them in and to do what God has asked them to do in these situations, which is to be holy in their conduct. Now again, this can be a hard thing to do when this kind of holy conduct comes face to face with suffering. And in just a moment, we'll see how Peter laces this command to be humble with some incredibly encouraging words that will strengthen us to pursue this humility. But I want you to note even here that when Peter's readers submit themselves under the hand of God, they are submitting themselves under a mighty hand. In fact, in context, we see just how mighty this God is. This is the God who has the power to protect the faith of his children and guard them until the day of salvation. Chapter 1, verse 5, Peter notes that these are Christians who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. He's also a God who, chapter 1, verse 17, judges impartially according to each one's deeds. 
So he has the power to judge as well. In fact, Peter even encourages his readers to conduct themselves with fear throughout their time on earth for exactly this reason. In chapter 3, verse 22, Peter also reminds us that this God has also given all authority to his Son, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. In other words, Peter tells his readers to submit themselves to God's working in these situations, since he not only has the power to protect these believers in the midst of their trouble, he also has the power to bring them out of it if he so chooses. In sum, Peter is telling his readers that as they suffer for their faith, they must humble themselves before the Lord because it is the Lord who has brought about or allowed the situation that's causing their suffering. Even more than this, he's telling them that this God hasn't done this by accident. This is a mighty God who protects, judges, and even has given full authority to his Son in whom they hope. In other other words, if they're in a situation that's difficult and full of pain, And if they're not submitting themselves to God's working by persisting in their holy conduct in the midst of that suffering, then they're actually in rebellion because God is the one who's placed them in that situation. I think we quickly forget this fact in times of suffering for the faith. We can find ourselves in a situation where because of our faith we're in affliction or suffering and our only thought can be, I hate this, or Lord, make it go away, or even, God, do you know what you're doing? And as we think this, we can be tempted to disobey God in order to take control of that situation. And it's then that we can remember that we have a mighty God who's working out all things according to to His will, and we can humble ourselves under His mighty hand. Everything that happens in our lives, even our suffering, is from from God. And we can take comfort in this thought and submit ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Once again, this answers the question, where, where do we lower ourselves? We humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Now let's ask the question, how? How does this kind of submission take place? What does it mean to submit yourself under God's working? We find the answer in the first half of verse 7 where Peter says, Casting all our anxieties on him. So we find this idea of anxiety appearing once again. We saw it last week or actually two weeks ago in Philippians. We see it coming up here again. This is an incredibly common response to suffering, right? We get anxious. We worry about the future. We wonder what's going to happen to me or, again, maybe even more specifically, what's going to happen with these relationships with these people I love? Peter says, cast this anxiety on God. The word for casting here in the Greek is epiripto. And it means literally to throw upon or place on. It's the same word that you would use if you were throwing a saddle onto a donkey or a horse. And that seems to be the idea that Peter's going after. Now, the particular particular form of this verb in the Greek also carries the idea that this is an action you perform one time without taking the object uh, back up again. You put the saddle on the donkey, and then you leave it there. He's saying, do this as well. And what are we supposed to do that with? What are we throwing on God? Well, it's our anxiety. 
our concerns, our fears. It's that almost imperceptible voice in your head that tells you, I don't think this is a good idea. When you faithfully love those who slander you. It's that feeling of dread in the pit of your stomach when you know that if you stand for the truth in a tough family situation, then you'll receive scorn and rejection from the ones you love the most. And you wonder, how am I going to get along with my family when they don't want to be around me because they know I'm different? And I can't participate in the sinful actions they participate in anymore. It's the fear that arises when you realize that if you stand for the truth in front of your friends, they'll laugh at you mock you, and continue on in their plans, not only without you, but perhaps even in spite of you. And this anxiety can show up in a variety of ways. It can come from either present or future possibilities. It can be either real or imagined. But in any way it occurs, the way that we cast this anxiety on God is by completely trusting Him to resolve the outcome of our obedience. We think God tells me to be faithful in my Christian walk, and so that's what I'm going to do. That's it. And after that, we don't consider the personal consequences that we could receive from that. Instead, we consider those consequences, which, I mean, honestly, can hurt a lot of times. We consider them to be in God's hands. Now, again, this is easier said than done, but don't think that the people Peter is writing to are unacquainted with these anxious situations. They would have been facing rejection from their family and friends, the seizure of their personal property, and in some situations, possibly even death because of their desire to be faithful to God. And the response that Peter urges his readers to have in these situations is is quite stunning. Look here, 1 Peter 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore, Since therefore Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves in the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. In verses 12 through 14, again, chapter 4, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. In verses 15 and 16, he continues. He says, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer as a meddler. And if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Essentially what Peter tells them to do over and over and over again is to keep on suffering. He doesn't say to fight for your rights. He doesn't say, you know, lash back at them, expose them. No, he says, simply keep your conduct pure. In fact, he says, even rejoice in the midst of that suffering because it's a sign that you're a genuine believer who loves God. This kind of behavior is true humility before God. You know, all anxiety at its core is the desire to take control of a situation that either we can't change or that we're not supposed to change. As we face these instances of suffering for the gospel, I think a lot of times, it's in my mind, it's almost like you're standing on a set of railroad tracks with the headlights of this massive freight train bearing down on you. 
And as we see the train steaming full speed ahead with no signs of stopping, we're able to imagine the havoc that this train's going to unleash in our life when it hits us. And we become anxious as it gets nearer and nearer to its impact, and there's this desire to, to jump off, right, and escape the devastation. But for some reason, either we're supposed to stay on the track, or maybe our legs are caught, we can't get off the tracks. All we want to do is to take charge of that situation by either removing the obstacle that's trapping us or by changing the circumstances that compel us to stay there. When we cast our anxiety on God, we're surrendering desire, the desire to take charge of that situation. We're yielding to Him. We're trusting that He's in control of it. Once again, we asked this question earlier about what kind of self-regard Peter's talking about when he's telling this audience to humble themselves, lower themselves. Well, this is the type of self-regard that Peter's talking about. When his readers cast all their anxiety on God, they lower their own estimation of themselves, of their own abilities, and even the importance of the things they love below God's abilities and the things that, they, that God thinks is important. They place God's desire for them ahead of their desire to control the situation and produce an outcome that they desire. So it's by casting our anxiety completely on God that we humble ourselves before Him. Let's ask one more question. And that's why. Why? Why should we cast our anxiety on God? Why not just take care of it ourselves and worry? And Peter answers verse 7. Because he cares for you. Because he cares for you. You see, our sovereign God brings suffering into our life. But it's not as if he's unconcerned with how that suffering affects us. Quite the opposite. In fact, even when we must humble ourselves to the extent that we're prepared to lose everything, we have this singular comfort that even when God takes away everything in our lives that seems most important to us, even then God has not forsaken us. And he still cares for us. We are his children, adopted into God's family as co-inheritors with Jesus Christ. This is the great trade-off of the cross. is that God looked at Jesus as if we were the ones on the cross. And in return, God would look at us as if we had performed the perfect obedience of his Son. When we identify ourselves in Christ, God sees him in us. And this means that God loves us infinitely and would never do anything for our ultimate harm. Paul said it this way, Romans 8, 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Jesus more or less says the same thing in Matthew 7, verses 7 through 11. He says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks it will be open. And he explains why this is so. He says, or which one, uh, one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? When he prepared his disciples uh, to go out on 
their mission. He said essentially the same message again, Matthew 10, 26 to 31. He told them, so have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. What you hear whisper, proclaim on the housetops. He says, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. God clearly cares for us. He cares for all people generally, but most especially for those of us who are in Jesus Christ. So we shouldn't worry about whether it's going to produce a good result or not. God's always going to work out our suffering for our good. Still, this doesn't mean that there won't be times where that love hurts. Again, you know this. In love for their children, parents sometimes have to put them through some harm. Emily and I sometimes take our kids to get shots, for instance. And we do that because as painful as the shot may be, it's still good for them. It's the same with us, spiritually speaking, before our Heavenly Father. So much of the time, you know, we're like kids that want to eat candy all the time because we think it's going to make us happy. And God loves us too much for that to happen. Again, it's like my pastor once said to me, I shared this with you last week, but it's like my pastor once said to me, he said, God often has to pry our hands open to give us the things we truly need. Well, if that's the case, then what good thing might God intend to bring to us through our suffering for our faith? In this context, I'll tell you there's a very specific application. Let's go ahead and look at this briefly. I've said that there's both an action and a purpose in this passage. We've already looked at the action. We're supposed to respond to suffering by humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Let's look now at the purpose. That occurs in verse 6, where Peter says that his readers should humble themselves, quote, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. So that at the proper time, he may exalt you. The word for exalt here is hoops ao. It means to lift up. It's interesting. This is actually the opposite of tape nao, or to humble. In other words, this humility that we pursue, which causes us to lower ourselves before God in all situations is not a final or absolute lowering. There is a point where we're going to be exalted. We're going to be raised up. But no, it's God who's going to do the exalting. He's the one that raises us up. And to ask one more question, when? When does that happen? Peter tells us. He says, at the proper time. So there will be a point where our humility, our lowness, will be undone in a sense, but it's not immediate. It's something that God will work out at a time that he knows is right. I think this is interesting because you look at this uh, historically, for instance, and it's very interesting to note what happened as a result of the instruction Peter gives his readers here. You see, Christians were very misunderstood in first century Rome. 
Romans had only had had uh, heard vague rumors about this new belief, and at first blush, it looked pretty wicked on the outside. As one author notes, uh, pagans had heard just enough about eating the body and drinking the blood of Christ, and of Christian talk about love and love feasts and being brothers and sisters to get the wrong idea. This is why after Rome nearly burned to the ground and Nero blamed it on the Christians to save his own skin, that the accusation actually stuck. It stuck because who else but the Christians would want to set fire to Rome? A famous historian, a Roman historian by the name of Tacitus, recounts that Christians were punished for the burning of Rome, quote, not so much for the crime of firing the city, as of hatred against mankind. You see, the Christians, uh, they wouldn't go to the local theaters or join the army or go to sporting events. They wouldn't do that because of all the idolatry that took place in these contexts. And so they were seen by the average Roman as antisocial misfits who secretly wanted to destroy society. And again, it made sense. Who else would want to burn the center of culture in the world but Christians? But I'll tell you what's notable. A mere 50 years after the writing of this letter from Peter, the governor of Bithynia, which is one of the regions that Peter addresses back in chapter 1, verse 1. This is one of the places that he wrote to, Bithynia. The governor of that region wrote to the emperor because he was perplexed about what to do with these Christians. He was told to persecute them. And as he uh, started to do that, he started to come up with a few questions. For instance, this is what he writes, after investigating Christianity by those who had actually turned away from the faith, those who apostatized, this is what he learned from the apostates. He says, they maintained, however, that the amount of their fault or error had been this, that it was their habit on a fixed day to assemble before daylight and recite by turns a form of words to Christ as a God, and that they bound themselves with an oath, not for any crime, but not to commit theft or robbery or adultery, not to break their word, and not to deny a deposit when demanded. After this was done, their custom was to depart and to meet again to take food, but ordinary and harmless food. And even they, they said, they had given up doing this after the issue of my edict, by which in accordance with your commands I had forbidden the existence of clubs. He continues, he says, On this I considered it the more necessary to find out from two maidservants who were called deaconesses, and that by torments how far this was true. But I discovered nothing else than a perverse and extravagant superstition. The governor was apparently flustered by this discovery. He says, I therefore adjourned the case and hastened to consult you. The matter seemed to me worthy of deliberation especially on account of the number of those in danger, for many of all ages and every rank and also of both sexes are brought into present and future danger. The contagion of that superstition has penetrated not the cities only, but the villages in the country. Yet it seems possible to stop it and set it right. Isn't that fascinating? 
These Christians are being persecuted for their faith. And yet, not only is the gospel still advancing in spite of it, but the way in which these Christians suffer, even submitting themselves to the unjust laws of the governing authorities, is even starting to win over their persecutors. The governor doesn't know what to do. He doesn't, seem what's so, he doesn't see what's so harmful about this religion, and it's, and it's so popular that crushing it would entail punishing wide swaths of the population. And so he's looking for some kind of instruction from the emperor that would enable him to address its spread in another way, without force. Again, friends, this is why I say that the best way through suffering isn't to try to avoid it, run away from it, adopt compromise, anything like that. It's patient endurance. I think it's more than possible that the exaltation that Peter is talking about includes a deliverance from suffering. Since again, he himself says earlier in this book that when one responds to suffering in this way, they silence the accusations of their accusers. So I think this is one type of exaltation that Peter has in mind. He says he'll exalt you at the proper time. And yet I also have to admit I think Peter has something else in mind here as well when he talks about this exaltation at the proper time. And that's death or the Lord's return, whichever comes first. And Peter starts off this epistle pointing his readers to heaven first. For instance, he says, uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Just a few verses later, in verse 13, He likewise urges them to holiness in the light of the coming of Christ. He says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action, be sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In addition, he quite plainly links our suffering with the revelation of Christ in chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial which comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Even in the immediate context, right here, chapter 5, when he's talking to the elders and how they're to exercise their authority in love and not for personal gain, he states, chapter 5, verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This is perhaps the chief deliverance that Peter has in mind when he talks about exaltation at the proper time. This, is a, this was a mode of thinking that uh, Peter tells us was practiced by none other than Christ himself even. Peter says in chapter 2 that when Christ was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's the same sort of thing that we find in Hebrews 12. Hebrews, by the way, also written to Christians who are being persecuted for their faith. And in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it points us to the example of Christ and what he set for us in suffering, 
saying, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. He says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, Listen to this. He says, Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is how Jesus responded to suffering. Now again, all this doesn't mean that, there will, that we'll never get any type of rest or reward in this life when we suffer for the sake of Christ. That may happen. Indeed, I believe... Paul, actually, means to tell the Philippians that he even expects for this to happen when they cast their anxiety on God in this way. However, at the very least, we have this certainty. That if you endure suffering for the sake of Christ, then you have this hope as well, that an eternal reward is awaiting you in heaven. This is ultimately how God will exalt His children. He'll exalt them by bringing them to Himself, seating them with His Son. This is what Peter is counting on when he writes to this audience, that they long for heaven. And so this is Peter's advice throughout this epistle. He tells his readers, fix your eyes on heaven. Forget how much it hurts right now. God still loves you. And he'll prove it when he redeems you. So don't set your hope on this world. Set your hope in heaven. And this is the idea that will get you through this kind of suffering. When you hope in the exaltation that God will bring you even after this life, which is irrevocable and eternal, there's nothing that you can't endure for the sake of Christ. After all, everything's already taken care of, right? So fix your eyes on this future exaltation. And this is my prayer for us today as we close, Cornerstone. I know that if you're being faithful in the Lord Jesus Christ, then it's inevitable that you're going to be met with rejection. My prayer for you is that as you're faced with the kind of lies that eventually come against those who are faithful, and as you're faced with the temptation to defend yourself and fight back, or perhaps like what we see in Philippians, as you're tempted to blame your suffering on your brothers and sisters in Christ, my prayer is that you'll remember what God calls you to, that you'll remember that He wants you to demonstrate the love of Christ in such situations with holy conduct, that He wants you to continue to love those who would persecute you, and that you would humble yourself under this direction and do it. And I pray that as you do this, that you would be strengthened in this by remembering that you have a mighty, faithful God who cares for you, who hasn't forgotten about you. And after you've suffered for just a little while, this God will also exalt you into unspeakable joy in His presence. Let's pray.